Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it is good that we meet on this Lord's Day, at the end of this day, this day from creation that you have ordained that we should worship you specifically. And we thank you for the blessings of even this day, the blessings of being with your people, the blessings of hearing your word, the blessings of gathering around your throne of grace with those of all nations and tribes to give you the praise worthy of your great name. We pray as we come to hear your word that you would remove from us those many obstacles, those thoughts that are about our work, those worries about life, those very thoughts that would keep us. And we pray that indeed we would turn to Jesus Christ through whom we come to you and in the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you for preserving that word over ages of time. We thank you that you spoke by your Holy Spirit through holy men of old who were moved by that spirit to communicate your mind. We thank you that it reveals to us who you are and what you have done. We thank you that you have made known to us your very mind. You have revealed to us about your Son, his work for us at the cross. We thank you that he did accomplish all of that, dying for us, being raised the third day, ascending into heaven, and now seated at your right hand. Give us, we pray, grateful and thankful hearts. We pray that as we gather, too, that we would see by those eyes that you give us and give us understanding. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit saith, that you would give us hearts motivated to do and feet willing to walk in the ways of our God, we pray. We pray for your servant. We pray that you would prepare him, the very words that you have for him, that we would hear your voice through him. Take that which he has prepared over this week and use that, we pray, in each of our lives. Prepare our hearts now, we pray, as only you can do by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for our sermon is from John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. This is located on page 891 of your Pew Bible. John 6, 16 through 21, page 891. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately... The boat was at the land to which they were going. 
Well, do keep your Bibles open there to John chapter 6. The Christian life is a journey in which there are mountains and valleys, moments of joy and elation and of fear and trepidation and distress. You won't be following Jesus very long before you find yourself moving from total conviction to total confusion. You can sing his praise one moment and you can question his goodness the next. You can feel his presence. You can bemoan his absence. In the flow of the story that we're looking at this evening, we find Jesus' followers one moment participating in what was arguably the greatest miracle that Jesus performed, certainly the most public of miracles, feeding perhaps in the region of 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and only to find themselves a few hours later on, they're in a violent storm. That's how we find them in this passage tonight. Their lives are threatened. They're struggling in the storm. They're in the deepest part now of the sea. Uh, Everything is going against them. They're getting tired. They're exhausted. They've been now rowing for several hours. What is wrong with that picture? On the one hand, they're participants in the most one of the most remarkable of divine providences and interventions. Now here they are just a few hours later, and they are at risk of their own lives. Well, let's back up for a moment. John's gospel is structured around a series of signs, that is, miracles or wonders that Jesus performed. And each sign is followed by a teaching block. If you have your Bible open, you can see that in chapter 6. In verses 1 to 15, you have a miracle described, the feeding of the 5,000. And then from verse 22 on, you have the teaching block that unpacks and explains what the miracle really was teaching and what the miracle's instruction is. And so there are these major signs in John's gospel, about seven of them. But this miracle is not one of them. This miracle just kind of creeps in here. When you read the the story at first glance, you wonder, well, why did John put it there? I mean, it's in the other Gospels. He didn't have to put it in. Uh, He's very often not put in things that were in the other Gospels because he knows you know them. He knows they're going to be, they're already in circulation by the time he writes his Gospel. Uh, Wonder why he puts it there. There's no obvious reason. Uh, The uh, The big themes that we've been noticing so far, really, beginning in chapter 5, have been the connection of Jesus to Moses. Moses, this outstanding figure, the great lawgiver of Israel. The feeding of the 5,000 had brought to mind the feeding of the Israelites in the desert by the manna from heaven. There's been a whole kind of emphasis of the relationship between Jesus and the prophets, especially Moses. But here there are no such obvious connections, at least not on the surface. We will find that there perhaps are, but but not on the surface. But John the writer is not known for throwing away random lines. He's not really known for that kind of thing. Jesus, in the context, let's look at the context and remind ourselves of it, Jesus has just rivaled Moses in feeding this massive crowd of people in the desert. He has eclipsed Moses in that the prophet had been the messenger of God, announcing the miraculous provision of the manna in the desert. But here Jesus is the creator 
and the provider of this superabundant meal in the wilderness. What we learned already, before we've even got to the teaching section of this chapter in relation to this miracle, what we've learned already is to have a very high view of who Jesus is. And John wants us to see that. He's now writing after the resurrection. He's looking back, and he wants us to see these things. He's highlighted these things for our attention. And then we come to this miracle that seems so out of place. And in fact, the main driving idea in the miracle, repeated twice, is the idea of fear. Suddenly we go from this provision to fear. And there are three aspects to this that I think we need to notice as we go through the story. First of all, it's the absence of Jesus that creates the fear. It's the absence of Jesus that creates the fear. I said that this was a well-known story. It is. It's told by Matthew and by Mark in their respective Gospels. The disciples go ahead of Jesus, leaving him to spend some quality time in prayer alone on top of a mountain. It's the other Gospels that tell us that it was actually Jesus' idea that they go ahead. In fact, more than an idea, he actually commanded them to go ahead of him to the other side of the shore. In John's account, he doesn't tell us that. He, he is content to have a brief and cursory account of what happens. He leaves the others to the details that he already knows that you have. The other Gospels, and you can read them for yourself. John wants to focus our attention not so much on them as on Jesus himself. That's at least one thing we can learn from the context. So the disciples have left the east side of the lake, and they're attempting to row the six or seven miles to Capernaum on the northeast side. John's reference to the distance they traveled suggests the disciples weren't making headway. Instead of going straight in a straight line from A to B, they had gone like a curve. They were curving away from their destination. They were curving actually out into the fatter part of the sea. They were in the most dangerous part of the sea. And they were making heavy weather of it. Mark says, Jesus, from his vantage point on a mountain, was able to see that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. They didn't know that, of course, but Jesus was able to see, either by supernatural sight or by the vantage point of the mountain. So here they are, heavy waves are making rowing difficult and making progress is impossible. They're getting nowhere. And we know something about the Sea of Galilee. We know this very often happened. Freak, violent storms would come out of nowhere. In fact, on the Sea of Galilee to this day, if you have a powerboat, you tie it up and you don't use it during one of those storms because they're at risk. And if that's true of modern powerboats, how much more true would it be of the flimsy wooden uh, boats of the period. So they were in danger. They were in danger and they were wearying, having rowed hard for several hours. Fishermen would not normally set out in such storms. The disciples, when they'd set out, it had been calm, but now they'd been caught out while at sea. They'd set out about four in the afternoon. Now it's about 3 a.m. in the morning. It is dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. It was dark. 
John is fond of noting darkness. Very often it's uh, real. It was night. When Judas went out, it was night. But, but John notices it because he wants us to know that things are not always as they seem. That there are powers about in the universe. There are the powers of darkness. They're not so much associated with the physical darkness, but they are powers of darkness. And physical darkness kind of underlines what kind of powers they are. They're evil powers. These disciples are at risk not simply from physical energies that are abroad. These disciples are at risk because there is a prince of darkness who wants to destroy them. The early church fathers, they would read this story and they would think of the church as a, as a little boat out on the sea, tossed by the winds, and they would see the little church of God beset by circumstances and beset by the powers of hell itself. They weren't far wrong in understanding that. John notes that it was now dark. And John's interplay of storm and darkness and trouble picks up language that you find in, in the Old Testament. In Psalm 42, for example, all your waves and your breakers have gone over me. Here's a man who's depressed and discouraged, and he says it's, by, it's like diving into the sea and it being too deep for you and the waves and the breakers are going over and you're panicking and you're overwhelmed and you're in danger. In fact, he goes on to say, the psalmist, I have come into the deep waters and the floods engulf me. When I was a little boy, I jumped into the deep end before I could swim and I remember going down and jumping up and not being able to reach the surface. And it's that sense of panic and fear. Maybe you've come to church this evening and you feel overwhelmed by your circumstances, overwhelmed by fear. Or in Psalm 69, uh, the, the people are overwhelmed by the deep waters that flood them. So they're in trouble, these disciples. Through no fault of their own, they find themselves in trouble. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Had he promised that he would? Had he perhaps indicated or suggested or somehow or other intimated that he would be there for them if they were in trouble? But Jesus had not yet come to them. There's an element of disappointment there, isn't it? You sense it in the words, in the way that John has put it there. He was there. He remembers. He had the feelings. Jesus had not yet come to them. They couldn't understand it. Why was He had always been there for them. He had always turned up for them. But Jesus had not yet come to them. They're disappointed. Perhaps they're wondering, we're here because He told us to go. But Jesus had not yet come to them. They're in the path of obedience. But Jesus had not yet come to him, come to them. I want you to pause on that just for a moment this evening. Apparently doing what Jesus tells you is no guarantee that life will not get complicated. Doing what Jesus tells you is no guarantee that life will not get complicated. Just think about that. We follow a crucified Savior. We are in union with one whose family did not recognize Him, whose brothers did not believe in Him during the days of His flesh, 
We are in union with one who was God-made flesh, yet he was mocked and scorned and bruised and spat upon and rejected and tried and crucified. Remember that. These disciples are perhaps wondering what is happening to them. John apparently doesn't have a clue. Mark, however, in his account, tells us that at least one of the reasons was this. The disciples' hearts were hardened. The disciples' hearts were hardened. They didn't get the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which, which kind of is bizarre. I mean, if you'd been there and you'd seen this happen, you think just we'd have got the we'd have got the point of that miracle, wouldn't we? Absolutely. I would especially have gotten the point of the miracle at Cain of Galilee, five hundred gallons of wine. I would definitely have got that. So, but they hadn't got it. What had they not got? Somehow or other, they had not got the immensity of what Jesus had done. They had not got their heads around the sheer enormity of what Jesus had accomplished. Their hearts were hardened. And the absence of Jesus creates their fear. Where is he? Here's a second thing you learn in this story. The presence of Jesus increases their fear. Yes, it does. The presence of Jesus increases their fear. Look at it again. There they are in the water. It's rough. They'd rowed about three or four miles they saw, they beheld. There's that, that word, behold, that, that comes up uh, in, in English translations. Because that's a very strong word. They beheld Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now you'd think, wouldn't you? Jesus has turned up, you know. Sirens going, uh, or it's like the cavalry have arrived. Cavalry have arrived. And, but no, that's not the effect at all. Here is Jesus now riding on the storm. Jesus walking on the water. Jesus coming towards them in the midst of it all. And what's their response? It is sheer fear. Terror. Actually, Mark says it was terror. They were terrified. Terrified. The presence of Jesus increases their fear. Now, it's interesting. What was it that they felt they'd seen? Mark tells us that at first they thought this was a spirit that they'd seen, a ghost. Perhaps one of the, the night spirits that inhabits the sea. Perhaps the spirit, the ghost of somebody who'd been drowned at sea. At first, that was their initial action. This was something supernatural, out of the ordinary. But it gets worse. They couldn't understand what was going on. There he was, and the word for walking that's used here is a very interesting word because it means effortless, effortlessly walking. There they were strenuously rowing and getting nowhere. Here is Jesus in the midst of the storm, and he is effortlessly walking towards them. It's kind of leisurely walking towards them. The wind isn't ruffling him. The wind isn't affecting him. He is not kind of walking the way you have to learn to walk when you're in Scotland. Kind of like this, against the wind. No, 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 he's not doing that. He is effortlessly walking towards them. 
It's an amazing picture, isn't it? And they realize this is something supernatural. They are frightened. They're terrified. Again, what does Mark say about them? They did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. The fear of the, the, the disciples is compounded by their unbelief. Because what they are seeing, what they are seeing when they saw Jesus, very interesting, that word behold. Because it's a word usually that has to do with, with, with seeing God or, or seeing something about God. It's the same word that's used in John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. Here he is walking on the water. This is supernatural. This is a divine thing. This is scary. This is terrifying. This is supernatural. This is a Jesus who makes us tremble. This is the God-man who rules the elements, who rides upon the storm, who walks upon the waves. Here is the Lord. Not a Jesus whose only role is to fuel our comfort but a Jesus who commands our trust, our submission, our awe. Do you have room for a Jesus like that? Do you have room in your Christianity for a Jesus like that? Today we fear the future. We fear the past. We fear failure. We fear tomorrow. We fear for our children. We fear for our country. We fear all kinds of evil that's in the world. We fear for all these things. What we need to deal with all of those little fears is a fear greater than them all. That is the fear of God. The fear of the Jesus. The Lord of winds and waves. And the presence of Jesus increases their fear. But thirdly, it's the word of Jesus that disperses their fear. Well, actually, not initially, though it ultimately does. So there he is coming towards them. They're terrified. He says, it is I, it is I, do not be afraid. Greek words, ego, I, me. The words that you find used over and over again in John's gospel. I, I say, I, I am, I, I, the double I emphasizing who he is, the I am, he says those words. And he's identifying himself to them using that particular formula. I, I am, ego, I me. And that's the language of an epiphany. That's the language of a divine appearance, as we shall see. So, so what is happening then in this event? Although, although it's not as obvious as, as the, the miracle of the, the food is concerned, there are indications that this is in here because John has learned the significance of this event from the perspective of the Hebrew Scriptures. Christianity is rooted in Judaism and in the Jewish Scriptures. We saw that this morning. And the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures know of all kinds of divine interventions at sea. 
Jonah, you remember Jonah? Thrown in, God provides a big fish. And then he's thrown up. He's thrown in and he's thrown up. Jonah prays and the storm is still. Do you remember that? Moses. Moses had been instrumental. The Moses who's been in the background of everything that's been said so far in this chapter. And he'll come up again in the rest of the chapter. Moses, well, he was instrumental, wasn't he? In the Red Sea parting so the people of God could go through. And after they'd gone through the, the, the desert and they get to the River Jordan, you remember, before they go into the Promised Land, Moses by that time is gone. And then Joshua comes and the people of Israel walk through that River Jordan on dry land. That's very impressive. But stilling storms and parting waters are not quite the same as walking on the waters, riding on the storm. Good name for a song, actually. Their Jewish background would help them to think about this event through another lens. This was an epiphany. This was a revelation, an appearing of the true God. The book of Job, for example, it was God who walked upon the waters. Job chapter 9, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. Or the psalmist in Psalm 77 who reflects on the Exodus event. He's thinking about what God did there and he says about God using poetic terms about God's paths on the sea. The background is the psalmist is afraid like they were. He's crying out to God for help like they were. It's the day of trouble, the, the phrase he uses, just as they were in a period of trouble. And as God's people would regularly do in such times, he reflects on what he knows of God. He says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work, meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And then he thinks of this one intervention. And he says, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. And Aaron, the God who drew near, the God who intervened at the Exodus, is now the God in Christ who is drawing near to them. This is a theophany. This is an appearance of the divine. Here is Jesus. And he says, take heart. I, I am taking the divine name upon his lips. The name that Moses knew. The name that God had used when he introduced himself to Moses. And suddenly we're beginning to see the significance of this story in the context. Jesus is greater than Moses. How much greater than Moses? Moses prayed for food. God provided it. Jesus prayed the blessing, then provided the food himself. Moses prayed, and God parted the sea. Jesus comes riding on the storm and walking on the waters. He does the God role in the whole story. Jesus' role in the miraculous provision of food was that of God's role in providing the manna. And here in the storm, Jesus takes God's role in walking the waves. 
This is absolutely vital then to seeing what's going on here as Jesus approaches these people. Throughout the history of God's dealings with his people, the presence of the great I am, first of all, strikes fear into people's hearts. Unmediated glory, unmediated holiness, unmediated majesty, when it meets human finitude and human sin, puts us into the dust. It strikes fear into our hearts. That's what Isaiah had in the temple when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, filling the temple. Fear struck into his heart. The fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. You don't really know God unless you have a fear of him. A fear in the sense of a respect. Electricity is a great thing, a great servant. But let me tell you, you need to have a healthy fear of electricity. Because it can kill you. God can too. The fear of the Lord. A healthy fear of the Lord. And when Jesus says, I am. He's recalling to the minds of these early Christians. You know, things like Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord whose way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. As Jesus comes close to them, they're frightened. Perhaps these things came into their mind at the time. Perhaps they came into their mind later. I think Ritterboss is right when he says these early Christians came to their conclusions about who Jesus was by actually reading the Old Testament Scriptures. And it was this kind of event that would trawl through their minds and catch all of these references in the Scripture to the mighty acts of God. And as he approaches them, as he comes near to them, they're frightened, they're terrified, they're braced for impact. He doesn't look as though he's going to stop. And then he says, I am. Don't be afraid. I mean, that's after all why Jesus came, isn't it? He came into the world and he took on our humanity. He took on our human frame. Came down to our size so we wouldn't be overwhelmed by the sheer enormity of God. He, he put on our humanity and he took our frame and he walked our path and he died our death and he rose again. He did that so that he could walk on the water to these disciples in the midst of the storm and say, it is I am. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. That's the way he works. That's the way it works. Don't you think Jesus could have calmed the storm for, from his mountaintop position? You know that he could, don't you? You know that. You know that he could have calmed the storm, got them to their destination like that. You know that? You know that. But he doesn't. He comes to them in the storm. He comes where they are in the storm. He comes to where they are and he comes 
to disperse their fear. And maybe you find yourself in a bit of a storm in your life. Everything is going against you. Your business is going against you. The world is going against you. Your personal life is going against you. Everything is falling apart. You feel as if you're on your own. You feel Jesus is not here. Jesus is absent. And this story is in the Bible to tell you that wherever you are in the storm, there is Jesus. He is there. You haven't seen him yet, but he's there. There is nothing. He's been watching you as you've been rowing and getting nowhere. He knows you're exhausted trying just to stay put where you are and to keep your head above water. He knows that. And He's there by the Holy Spirit. He comes close. He comes to you in the storm, in the midst of the wind and the waves. There He is. He's there with you in the storm. And He's there as what? He is there as the mighty I am. He is there as mighty God. He is there who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above above all that you could ask or think. He is there for you. He is there not against you. He is there for you. And He will not. He will not give up on you. Do you know these great words by Catherine von Schelgel? Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence let nothing shake. Now all mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Believe that, will you, for the storms in which you find yourself? His voice is recognized by the winds and waves that are overwhelming you. Well, they were glad. They were glad to take him into the boat. I think that's an understatement. They were mightily relieved. They They were glad they willed to receive him into the boat. Is actually what it says, and, and that language is taken right out of chapter 1, when there were people who willed not to receive him. This is the thing about the child of God. They will to receive him into the boat. They want him. They want him. Jesus comes to those who want him. And then he confirms to them what he has done. Later on in John's Gospel, when he's reporting the appearances of the risen Christ, we find that Jesus very often isn't content just to kind of turn up, but he wants to offer them some some further conviction that he is really there and that this miracle has really happened. So he comes on one occasion and he says, I'm, I'm not a ghost. Give me something to eat and I'll show you. Another time he comes and he says, listen, you don't need to be afraid. It's me. It's really me. Thomas, I want you to put your finger into the nail prints and your hand into my side. It's really me. 
Jesus does something similar for them here because we read immediately, literally at once, as soon as he stepped in the boat, the boat was at the land to which they were going. So as well as a miraculous water walking, there is a miraculous tele kind of transportation thing going on here. They, they are immediately there at their destination. The same way that Jesus, remember, immediately is just standing there. They're in a closed room. All the doors are shut. They're gathered together. And suddenly Jesus walks in from nowhere. There he is. And he's really there. So he took them all with him. There was this, there's this amazing demonstration of Jesus' Messiahship and Godhead, good Godness, as he takes them to where they're going. He gets you to where you're going. He gets you to the destination in the end. He got them there. And do you know, this was a, this, the reason that this is not one of the signs, by the way, is that all of the signs that John re refers to are public events. This was a private event for the disciples alone. This is for Jesus' people. This is here for you, if you're one of Jesus' people. This story is specially for you. It was for them to underscore the deity of Christ. And it is for us this evening. Whatever storms may come, Jesus knows. And Jesus is not far away. And Jesus will come to you by his Spirit in the storm. And I'm going to tell you something tonight. Whatever you're going through and you're here in this room this evening, it is by no accident that this is the subject for you this evening. And it's by no accident that this evening we should in a moment have thrust into our hands something physical, bread. And to our lips, something physical, wine. As the Lord Jesus presses these into your hands, you take them, you put them in your mouth, you eat them. He is saying to you, I am as really here in this room as that bread is, as that wine is. I am really here. By my spirit, to those who believe, I am really, really here. And I want you to be blessed this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus draws near to us, tossed about as we are often by circumstances, discouraged by what life throws at us. We thank you that he comes, and he comes to bless. We pray that you would please take your word, and now take us as we come around your table and minister to our hearts by your word and by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.